when you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. In each episode, I will dig deep to uncover the mindsets that turn adversity into advantage. Hi, it's Simon, and welcome to episode five of Turning the Tables. I thought before I talk about what's in store in this episode, I just wanted to say a massive thank you to everyone who's listened to Turning the Tables so far. I mean, it really does mean a great deal, and I hope in some way it's shed some light into your world. So thank you again. But back to this episode, a bit of a change of pace in this episode, as I'm joined by John Bailey. He's a writer, broadcaster, and environmentalist, with a small e. John is an inspirational example of someone who's been lucky enough to have carved a career doing something they love. In this case, fishing and teaching. If you fish yourself or have ever done so in your life, you will enjoy listening to John's adventures from around the world. The memories. My God, Simon, just a kaleidoscope of adventures, big fish, crazy nights, wolves. But if you've never fished or even planned to fish, John's life is so much more than that because his experiences have brought him closer to an understanding of people and the world we live in. In our discussion, John talks about his own life adversity and how it affected him, but also what he learned from that. Life is the most precious gift, and to waste a second of it really isn't on the cards at all. We are just so, so lucky to have it. John also talks about his joy at helping bring the friendship and companionship that's at the heart of fishing to wider attention through working with Paul Whitehouse and Bob Mortimer in the TV series Gone Fishing, which is on our screens as we speak. Of course, there was only one place to start our interview, on the banks of a glorious lake in the Norfolk countryside, a really quite idyllic location. And I asked John how it was he actually got into fishing in the first place. So long ago in the midst of time. It wasn't really, Simon, a case of how did I get into it. It was more, much more a case of it, it was so deeply ingrained into me. It was just something that I couldn't conceivably not do. And I was, it sounds really strange now, and I know how, how odd it must appear, but I was obsessed with fishing from honestly and truly about three or four years of age. And of course, I, I kept fishing diaries from the age of four or five. So, you know, I can still go back to these diaries and see that even over 60 years ago, I was essentially the same human being and just as obsessed with fishing and fish and water. I think that's a big issue, water, as I am now. And, and I haven't deviated from that path decade after decade. And it, it's, it's quite extraordinary. So I, I sometimes struggle these days when people talk about how to interest children in fishing. In my case, it was just how could I possibly be diverted from it? And I never have been able to be diverted from it. You grew up, I think, on the Manchester Canals 
in terms of your fishing start point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, the rivers, of course, in the northwest when I was a kid were grossly polluted. And so whilst we lived on the River Goyet, which is a tributary of the Mersey, it just used to flow one colour after another completely depending on what dyes the mills were using that particular day. So sometimes the goyet would be purple or orange or green, which wasn't conducive to a fly hatch. And our back garden actually ran down to the Peak Forest Canal, which uh, was one of that network of waterways in the northwest that, that obviously served the Industrial Revolution. And as I say, because of my diaries from the age of four and onwards, I would spend every free moment by the side of the canal, which again, I presume a kid nowadays wouldn't be allowed to do. So I've just been immersed in water, literally from the age I could walk. I think a lot of people who maybe don't uh, know and understand perhaps about fishing and why people do it would wonder how on earth anyone could make a, a career in fishing. But actually you didn't start there, did you? You, you were actually a, a teacher was your first profession. Yeah, I mean, I left uni without any clear idea of what I wanted to do. And I'd always had mixed messages from my parents insofar as my mother had said providing a happy, be a lowly water bailiff. My father would growl, money doesn't grow on trees, the lad needs a job. And after uni, I did, you know, like a lot of people, I, I knocked around and did all sorts of strange jobs all around Europe. Went into teaching, and I have to be honest, it was partly because I thought I'd be good at teaching, and I suppose most of my life, one way or another, I have actually tried to teach people, rightly or wrongly, badly or well. And because, I have to say, the holidays were so conducive to a life by the water. And um, it worked for me very well for 14, 15 years. And then I got the opportunity to make a fishing film in the Himalayas. And that was the push I needed. I started writing for the Angling Press in my 20s. I started writing my books in my 30s. And so by the time I did leave when I was teaching, when I was 38, I'd already, I think, written five or six books. And it had got to the stage I was making as much money from my writing as from my teaching. So it wasn't actually a leap in the dark. And I have been extraordinarily lucky for the last 30 years. I mean, I've read, led the most privileged of existences. And um, whatever happens to me in the future, I'll look back on my life with, with wonder and awe. It's just been an amazing journey, thanks to fishing. People might be thinking, well, what an amazing childhood ideal to be fishing for a lot of the time. Was your childhood all so easy? I suppose this is a crux, isn't it? Um, I was an only child, which I've never regretted or um, uh, whinged about. I was adored by my mother because my mother was quite old for the 50s to have a first child. She was nearly 40 when I was born. She and my father had married in middle age, partly because of the war and partly because my mother had been divorced twice, which was quite something, of course, in the 40s and 50s. So I was this adored miracle child that they both wanted and suddenly appeared when they were 40 and 39, respectively. So in some ways, looking back on it, there was a certain amount of pressure on me because of that. And... I think it was expected that I would always do incredibly well. I was very focused as a child and made to stay focused on whatever I did. But then there's nothing new in that whatsoever. You know, a lot of middle-class children, I think especially in the 50s and 60s, had a lot of parental pressure, and the school I went to was a bit of an academic hothouse. So. But I've got absolutely no complaints about that, and it sort of imbued a work ethic that I like to think has stayed with me. 
I suppose, because we were a very tight-knit family, I suppose the gremlins that I might talk about or probably want to talk about really um, sprang from my father's ever more debilitating alcoholism. And it was an alcoholic journey that um, really crucified what was, in essence, a very happy, very close, very loving, very small, tightly knit family. And it had absolutely appalling effects. And I, I, I guess those effects really affected me then and ever more. Um, but as I say, I'm not whinging because I've had a wonderful life. But everybody has a bottle of vodka in the closet. So what age were you when, you, when your father had the problem with alcohol? I guess that he probably always had. I mean, it was more a question, I think, Simon, of at what age did I become aware that there was a problem with alcohol? And because I was an only child, I think, and partly because of fishing, I think fishing made me very thoughtful. It made me grow up. I mean, I never really, this again sounds a bit pathetic and nerdy, but I never really played as such. I was either working or fishing or playing football. So the idea of having toys or anything like that was completely foreign to me. You know, my presence would either be fishing rods or football boots or whatever. And so I think I was a very thoughtful child and my diaries seem to seem to reinforce that and make me think, oh my God, you know, what a brooding little bugger I must have been. So my suspicion is that I began to realise that weekends could become a living hell from about the age of seven. And I began to dread my father's presence in the house. And he worked away a lot, which was really something of a saving grace for both me and my mother, I realize now. And the times that he came back, I think both of us manufactured our excitement at seeing him. But the weekends could be very, very dark. And I began to realize in a very junior, infantile sort of way that something was seriously wrong with my father from often as early as nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. And the, as I say, weekends in particular could develop into a strange, inexplicable for me at that age, type of torment and hell. And this shadow became darker and longer and contaminated my life more and more from really the age of seven till probably really 17 or 18 when I was adult enough to break free and just go off on my own, really. Mm. Did it ever have any direct impact on you? A lot. There's no doubt about it. I mean, a lot of times from the, the dark time would always be from 7, 8 o'clock on a Saturday night when probably after 12 hours of drinking, things began to spin out of control and there would be scenes and there would be either falling out or falling over, falling overs, and on occasion doctors called who were disgusted with the whole scene. I mean, alcoholism wasn't understood in those days. It was just seen as a sign of weakness and something to be completely vilified. Of course, as an only child, I was peering from the shadows at this on, I suppose, most weekends of my younger life. Whilst that was bad, it meant increasingly I could never really relax ever 
because I was so I was waiting really for any moments of calm, tranquility, and happiness to be snatched away because I, that's what I expected. That's what life taught me. That was my life experience. And the only times I was really happy were those times when I was on my own, probably fishing or watching water or playing football or working, or when I was just with my mother, knowing that my father was working in the States or in Germany. So it did have a huge effect on me. I can't ever say that my father hit me or anything like that. I was never physically or, or bodily abused, but the mental damage without any doubt, was extraordinary. And there were many times, my father had a very important job and we'd go out for dinner and he would drive home completely incapacitated. And on three or four occasions, we spun off roads and we hit trees and things like that. And, you know, screaming and tears and increasingly as I got older, my mother threatening to leave and packed suitcases. Looking back, it would probably have been the best thing. It might have had an impact on my father, and it might, I think, have probably saved my mother. But, of course, it never happened. So, having to live with that for such a long time, through your early years of life, can you look back and say there was an impact in that, in your later life, in your behaviour, in, in, in your mindset, or anything like that? Mm, I think absolutely. I think absolutely. I, I think on... On a sort of positive side, Simon, I think it's positive, is the fact that because of that situation, I think all my love devolved upon my mother. I didn't understand my father. He'd had a dreadful war. And that makes me feel guilty now because I, I so criticized him. I, I even learned to hate him as a child and I so criticized him as an adult. And I think now the fact of his appalling war should really be held... In credit and should should really make me rethink how I viewed him. But I did really pour all my love into my mother and I think probably all my life I've been looking for that complete, perfect, unconditional love. Uh, I think that explains a lot of my emotional issues over my life. But without any doubt, I think the major problem is, as I've already said, that it's left me almost incapable of what we'd call now, you know, enjoying the moment, living for the moment. However happy I might be, I am waiting really for my drunk father to come and ruin it all. And I find it very difficult to break out of that. So taking you, perhaps moving on a bit, to your fishing career, you, you, you grew up with, I think, a, a group of relatively famous fishermen and, and probably for those who don't know fishing, the one person you might have might know is, is John Wilson, um, who unfortunately passed away recently. But you grew up with John, didn't you? And that was part of your fishing education, really, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, every, everything has its bright side, doesn't it? Because my father, um, I, think, I think in the 60s, it was called having a nervous breakdown because of my father's alcoholism. He was retired early and moved to Norfolk. My parents retired to Norfolk when I was still very young. So I, I spent a lot of time still being schooled in the Northwest and commuting from Manchester to Norfolk and back again and so on, which again, I think was very good for me. It bred a sort of independence. Um, but it got me away from those meagre, mean canals into the bountiful county of Norfolk where all the fish seemed enormous and all the water seemed beautiful and you, you weren't beaten up by gangs of youths for going fishing. You're right, Simon, John Wilson was 
um, very important. Uh, knowing him was very much a catalyst because it was John, bless him, who encouraged me to write. And so under John's tutorship, to a degree, I started writing for the Angling Press. And I suppose in a way it was my... I was was a, a lad obsessed with fishing and then I knew John from the age of 20 and I became a man who knew how to fish to some degree because of John and I, I do always know that I owed John a great deal. And I think what John also did was make me realize that somehow, some way in the future, I could probably make a living out of fishing and actually make it my life. This was a little easier in some ways because both my parents died of cancer uh, within six months of each other when I was in my mid-twenties, which was horrendously traumatic. The blackness of those two or three years was intense. But again, my father was still drinking, and um, which did not make my mother's final months any easier. And again, I never really grew very close to my father during those times, which you might have expected. I loved him, obviously, but there was still a great deal of hurt and there was a chasm between us. And their death, I suppose in some ways, I'll be candidly honest here, and I rarely have been in the past, but it left me feeling free probably for the first time in my life. I felt that I could do what I'd always done what I'd wanted but I was very well aware that I'd probably you know not be uh, particularly (laughs) popular for doing so whereas when they did eventually die at a young age I had an enormous sense of freedom and independence and that helped when it came to launching really my life and my life has been built on fishing and around fishing as I say I've been incredibly lucky. So you've been guiding, you've been writing, and you've been, more recently, on TV around fishing. What really motivates you about guiding? Because for those people who, who perhaps don't know what guiding is in fishing, it's obviously where you take people to fish and you go, and you teach them how best to do that and get them to a position where they can find the right fish. And What is it that sustains you from that? Really good question. We'll go back, if we may, just to the, the year when I finally left teaching and embarked on the life that I've led for the last 30 years. And I was shoehorned out of teaching by the offer of making a film for ITV in the Himalayas, fishing for a, an amazing species of fish called the Marcia. And it was a six, seven-week filming stint. And so I, I, it was either turn the offer down and carry on teaching or leave teaching and make the film. So it took me about, ooh, I should think, two seconds to make the decision. Left teaching, filmed in the Himalayas through August and September of 1989. And um, so from that moment onwards, I have made my living precariously around fishing one way or another. And what the trip to the Himalayas did for me was actually something that I hadn't realised I possessed, which was a a huge streak of wanderlust. And it's fair to say that from 1990 till 2010, and they are convenient dates because it, it, it covers exactly those two decades, I was rarely at home. You know, I, I think during that period, I was normally abroad six to eight months of the year. 
and it was always fishing. More and more, to come back to your question, um, guiding fishing parties. And what I did was look for little niches where the big outfitters feared to tread. So instead of taking people to, for example, the Kola, which is an incredibly popular salmon destination, as you know, Simon, I would look for all the little backwaters around the world where nobody else had thought there were fish or dreamed of going. And certainly India was one of my major targets. I went to India every year for 22 years, 23 years, in fact, and sometimes stayed out there for two or three months a year. So that was an enormous part of my life. Other highlights, of course, I became very well known for helping pioneer fishing in Mongolia. I uh, spent the equivalent of two, two and a half years of my life out in Mongolia. Uh, another biggie was Greenland, where I spent many months each year out in Greenland. So during that 20-year period, I think I'm right in saying I fished in 63 countries. And most of those trips, I was guiding people. I was, I was guiding teams and loved it because I could indulge my, <laughs> my feeling that I can... I'm a teacher at heart and that I've got things to impart, so I could do that. I was learning more and more about the world, different cultures, different people, different river types, different fish. What a magnificent way to make a living for 20 years. And the memories, my God, Simon, just a kaleidoscope of of adventures, big fish, crazy nights, wolves. And you've had some stars. scrapes, I think, along the way. Some amazing scrapes. Um, I think it was October the 8th, 1998, um, traveling back from eastern Mongolia to the capital Ulaanbaatar. Our plane crashed and we were out in the wilds for three, four days before we were rescued, um, which was fun. I was marooned in a Mongolian camp with some manic Saturn hunters around the camp for two nights with rifles and preparing. They'd already killed two Russian geologists just up the valley from us and they were obviously waiting for us to relax or give them a chink in, uh, give them a window to invade and kill us. That was good fun. There was a time in, in India where um, a desperado called Virapan was trying to capture me and the team to hang us high, hold us ransom to get his captured teammates back. So I've had some, um, I've had some tricky ones. Yeah, I've had some really tricky ones. Drunken pilots because storms had come in from Siberia, and we'd have to, uh, we'd have to wait for the storms to pass. So it's it's always fun telling telling a team that they're going to be at least a, a week late home. <laughs> the first time I took a a paid group out Mongolia, um, the pilot of this single prop aeroplane came to tell me that we had 13 turns of the uh, propeller and if the engine didn't fire by then, uh, the battery would be dead and we'd have to stay there for the winter. We'd left it too late to get any other transport out. But not to worry, he said, because we've got rooms, as it were, booked at the local monastery 50 miles away, so there's no need to panic. But fortunately, I didn't have to tell the guys <laughs> that we were going to overwinter in a Mongolian monastery. So, yeah, um, great, 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 great days. And perhaps, I suppose, looking back, you know, what was being one to look on the bright side of life, and perhaps the fact that I did have problems when I was a kid, and I learned to rely on myself. 
And perhaps during the dark times out in places like India or Mongolia or Greenland, perhaps those early struggles did give me an inner strength of some sort. I mean, I guess when you when you spend a, a life at close quarters with other people on those kind of adventures and also closer to home, I guess, with the, the guiding you do across the whole of Norfolk, you get an insight into the lives of the people that you, that you guide. Is there a, a reason that people want to come fishing with you beyond the obvious of to learn better about how to fish or to catch better fish? Is there a, a sort of deeper motive, perhaps? I like to think so. Over the 25 years, I, I've been officially a guide for at least part of my working life. You know, it is, has been an income stream for 25 years. I have become incredibly close to a large number of people I've guided because I think that one of the joys of fishing is that there is a tranquility. I mean, people get fishing wrong. It's a mixture of extreme tranquility and intense excitement. So it has huge amounts of, of ups and downs when it comes to your mental state, your physical state. Um, that's part of the thrills of it, I think. But you do get, a long, get long periods where you're with people on their own and you're talking... And, of course, you're in, you're in surroundings that are nearly always uniformly, stunningly beautiful. And I think there is something very soulful about that, very powerful about that. I think it, it does open people up. It does make people talk about their lives, think about their futures, their inner strengths, their failings, their fears, their hopes, their dreams. There have been a number of times when I've been very moved by this extraordinary insight into people's lives, which I don't think I would have achieved or been given a glimpse of if I'd done anything else, quite honestly. I think it's, fishing as a therapy is extraordinarily powerful. I don't just hope I haven't abused and misused my position there. At this point, I reflected that having known John for about 10 years and having had the pleasure of his company and fishing with him and his group of like-minded anglers, that there was so much more to it than the fishing. A lot of people who go fishing with John on his adventures in his beloved Norfolk or, or abroad have very pressured lives, busy lives, and it's an escape, an escape from those pressures. A kind of a therapy, I think. A sort of release of the pressure valve. And that is one of the things that drives people to coming back. So I asked him whether he thought that was true and whether he'd seen that himself. My average customer, if there is such a thing, would be middle class and middle aged. There are pretty wide parameters there. but And I think every now and again, it's just brilliant to be able to say, I'm away for two days, I'm going to do what I love, I'm with like-minded people, and I'm just ditching my normal life. And I do like to think that people go back to their normal life completely recharged. And, and, and I know for a fact a lot of them do. Mm. So there's so much more to fishing. It really, really annoys me that so few people actually get what fishing is about. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the strengths, you know, you said in the in, talked about in the introduction that I work with Paul Whitehouse and Bob Mortimer on their fishing series. And I like to think one of the strengths of that series is it's actually shown people, wives in particular, that there is a lot more to fishing than just hoiking a fish out every now and again, that it's a, 
it's a life within a life. I mean, for those people who haven't seen the series, which um, has been very well received and, in fact, was nominated for a BAFTA, I think, it really charts Paul and Bob's experiences with health and fishing was a way of them getting back their well-being and their health and perhaps thinking more about themselves and what fundamentally they needed to do to stay healthy. Alive. And alive. (laughs) Alive. Yeah, I think think the series amplifies is exactly what I said that, you know, I mean, Paul and Bob are exactly as I've said, they're middle-aged and middle-class and they've, they've, they've worked themselves to a complete frazzle, they've had appalling health problems and they just said, whoa, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to get through this, we've got to draw a line in the sand, we, we, we've got to do something for ourselves. What did we enjoy more than anything when we were kids? And that was going fishing with mates. Let's go fishing with mates. And that is the backbone of the series. And, of course, what the series has done so charmingly, because they're both funny, obviously, ingrained humour, but they're both lovely guys. And I think what the series has done and why it's been so popular is is, it's highlighted that warmth that there is between fishing pals. And it's almost returning, isn't it, to what we perceive as a a more mellow, nicer, more cuddly age. You know, it's, it's a way back to the 1940s, 50s. And that's what the series is about. And I think that's what Paul and Bob have brought to the public and reinstated in, in their lives, if you like. And and it's just a lovely experience being with them and being involved. It, it's as genuine off-camera as it is on-camera. And I think in that in that series, fishing plays a role rather than it being the purpose of the, the, the emphasis of, of the programme. So in that way, perhaps it's introducing fishing to more people in the wider public than perhaps had been the case historically. I think what you've said is completely spot on there, Simon. I think that, you know, I said I've built my life around fishing and the actual catching of fish has retreated to a nothingness in that life of fishing. I mean, I am fascinated by the fish themselves and I find fish stunningly beautiful. I I, I like to think I'm a birder as well. And so many people appreciate birds and so few people appreciate fish, which are at least as interesting and at least as beautiful. But really, for me, fish... Fishing is not really catching a fish anymore. It's looking at fish, studying at fish. It's the waters themselves, it's the places, it's the people. It's really everything associated with with a very full, fascinating life in nature and a very, very hands-on way of exploring nature. So the fishing, catching fish has just been a way into a different world for me. And I think we should point out for people that in course fishing, fish are put back and looked after and their well-being is, is centermost for anglers. But I think you're talking about nature there and I think it's true to say that conservation is really another big part of your passion. Since 2010, I've hardly gone anywhere because I think it was around that time I just thought, whoa... How many more times do I want to be marooned in Moscow airport at 2am? I've had enough of this. And equally important, I began to realise what an important central role Norfolk and Norfolk's fishing, Norfolk's waterways had played in my younger life. 
And I think I wanted to get back to that world, get back to that sort of feeling of enchantment. And I began to realize increasingly that there'd been appalling things happen in the 20 years or so I'd turned my back traveling abroad. And so the last nine years, I've become very deeply immersed in all manner of different conservation issues. And I suppose if I have a real goal now, it's to see my beloved River Wensum as fertile and full of fish as when I first knew it in 1957. And whether I catch any of those fish is completely by the by. I'd just like to think that they're there. Mm. And, and I think it's true to say that, that rivers are somewhat under threat with many different facets of, of the environment encroaching on, on rivers. And again, I think that's a, a passion of yours to, to try to maintain the, the beauty of these environments. Completely, Simon. Uh, my issue is, of course, that Basically, the statutory authorities are not, I'm afraid, just aren't fit for purpose. Uh, during the last 10, 15 years, things get more and more pressed. They get, they get worse and worse. The statutory authorities really show little inclination to do anything much. And I find it very, very painful. I really do. Uh, it is something that grieves me to the bottom of my soul. And in a strange sort of way, I mean, a lot of the work that I do has, has ruffled a lot of feathers, but I'll carry on ruffling feathers simply because in my arrogance, I, I just feel I know how these rivers need to be treated and they're not being treated in the way that they should be. And I'll, you know, I'll do what I am doing now until I've got no breath left in my body. Um, it is my absolute driving passion. There is so little not to like in the concept of Mr. Crabtree. Bernard Venables, who was the creator of Crabtree, it was a, it was a cartoon strip, as you rightly say, and the whole concept was that Mr. Crabtree took his son Peter fishing, and together they learnt about fish, fishing, the countryside, each other, built a bond, and the cartoons mirrored a, an idyllic English countryside of... Uh, just heartbreaking beauty. And I think, quite honestly, you now I was talking about my average client, I think all of them, all of us, want to inhabit a Crabtree world. I think we read Mr. Crabtree and gawped at the cartoons when we were all kids. And there were three, if not four, generations of Crabtree fishing kids who have spent their entire life wanting to walk into one of those cartoons and wanting to fish one of those cartoon lakes or one of those cartoon rivers. And I think, you know, you were saying, why do people come back? And I think partly to a degree, I like to think that I can almost conjure those experiences up. And believe you and me, those experiences are just as important and just as thrilling for me as they are for anybody who comes fishing with me. Is it escapism? No, I don't think it is escapism because I think, I think it fires us to do what we can to make for a better world. You know, I think it's, I think it's immensely exhilarating and inspiring. Do you think that perhaps some of that 
companionship, that simple life is missing now with our world full of technology and the like? Yeah. I mean, it would be no surprise to anybody that I'm going to say that because I, I, I don't think there's anybody that would deny that we live in a fragmented world now. And I think, you know, I, I look back all the way through my life. As I've said, I was to some degree isolated as an only child. But the other thing to remember, of course, because I was an only child, from a very young age, I made very, very firm friendships with loads of different people, mostly a lot older than me. And friendship, real friendship, true friendship, has always been an absolute bedrock of my life. And I've been immensely fortunate with the scores and hundreds of people that I've counted as friends. And, you know, I, I know a lot of younger people now and they really just do not know what the power of friendship in an old-fashioned crabtree sense is all about as you say technology has has in some ways watered down so many real experiences you know we just live a so many people live a, a very insipid reflection uh, of, of what really people my generation experienced mm. And I, I, I say this with real, real regret. So many people, because of the Crabtree series on television, two series, so many people would come to me. I, over and over again, I'm asked why children aren't going into fishing. And of course, we were allowed, we're not quite the same age, but nearly, when we were kids, we were allowed from the age of six, seven, eight to get on our bicycles, cycle here, cycle there. You know, the old thing was, don't speak to strangers, don't get into strangers' cars, don't accept sweets from strangers. That's it, now clear off and we'll see you at dusk. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas now, of course, I feel really, really sorry for the kids today because, of course, they're not allowed that freedom that, that we relished. You know, it, it made us grow up, we had to face our own challenges, we had to find our own solutions. Whereas children now are just not physically allowed to be on their own, to experience mm. the nature, the raw nature that you and I knew. It's one thing taking a kid to a zoo or a wildlife park. It's a completely, utterly different experience to spend all summer holidays out on your own or with your mates, actually learning these things for yourself. It's, it's as different as night and day. And children these days have no ability to to learn this sort of thing so in a way i mean fishing and, and being in the environments which you are when you're fishing actually could play a very important role in in well-being for many people absolutely absolutely it's it's just that total immersion in something that is fundamental life restoring just so blooming important Okay, to sort of bring us perhaps full circle, if you reflect back on the adversity you talked about in your early childhood, your father's alcoholism, what do you think you learned from that experience that you've applied in later, later life? I think that I am completely and utterly the person that I was 60 years ago. And I say that because I have the written diaries to almost prove it. And even now when I write articles, I rough them all out by hand first before sitting down at a laptop or typing them properly. And so I haven't really progressed one jot. All I will say is that the last four or five years, I think 
To some degree, Simon, I'll say this because of you, I think I have been much more mindful of the good times that I've now, I'm now experiencing and I'm enjoying. And it's been the last two or three years in particular when I have, for the first time, I would say, in my life, really and truly appreciated what I have without the fear of it being snatched away. And I think if I go back to, say, an exceptionally happy time in Mongolia, which would be getting back to camp, having had a dinner of yak, lighting a bonfire <laughs> on the steppe by the river, <laughs> looking at the stars, bottle of vodka in your hand, listening to wolves in the mountains. Even then, that most wonderful period in any man's life, conceivable, I would still be worrying about the next day or worrying about the weather in two days. I would still be thinking that this idyll would somehow be shattered. And what I would say is that at last in my life, I've come to a sort of acceptance and a sort of calm and a realization that I won't have life forever, that life at this moment is extraordinarily happy for me. And I'd better just bloody enjoy every second of it. That sounds a reasonable thing to, to think. <laughs> it's taken um, me long enough. <laughs> yeah. Inevitably, people listening, there may be people with various types of adversity in their life. Is there any reflections you would have for them based on that realisation that you've just talked about? I think the stage I'm at now is just a realisation, and I've heavily stressed this, that life has been extraordinarily kind to me. And I don't go in for regret, but if I wish one thing, it would have been that I had completely savoured every single moment of joy, rather than worrying about the cup being dashed from my lips. And if I do have any message, it really is simply that, that life is the most precious gift, and to waste a second of it really isn't on the cards at all. We are just so, so lucky to have it. Well, I think that's a fantastic way to finish this interview. Thank you, John, very Thank much. <laughs> it's been you. great fun. And we're still sat here in this wonderful place with the wind blowing and the, and the breeze on the river. Um, and long may it continue. I've enjoyed every second. Thank you, Simon. Thanks, John. Bye. There is much to reflect on in John's story. The first point I think it illustrates is the importance of following the life and the work that you are passionate about rather than the life you feel you should follow. Perhaps this is a luxury not everyone can choose, but I wonder how often we make decisions based on autopilot about what we do with our lives, when a different direction would be better for our well-being and probably better for us as people. As a parent, it made me think how our children are so often pushed towards achievement in a very narrowly defined way. Money, career prospects, status. I think John's story raises a big question mark against this attitude. Is it really right for everybody? Should we not think twice? Should we not encourage our children to think twice about what they go on to pursue? I was also struck by how the issues of John's childhood had shaped his mindset, his drive for independence, but it also gave him an inner strength, 
Of course, perhaps it also stopped him enjoying his life as much as he could have until now, 50 years on. I will leave you with a final thought. What might be holding you back from enjoying your life? How could you reframe your life to focus more on your passion, whatever that might be? Because as John says, we only have one precious life and wasting it is just not an option. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning the Tables. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.